When you're outside, there's much better airflow change. It dissipates your exhaled air. And so when you're inhaling somebody else's air, there are very, very few particles. So you're safer. You're also safer during the day when it's hot because um, it, that uh, dries out the particles and the virus uh, won't live as long. So there is many good things about being outside. Today on Dirty Linen, something a little bit different. We are talking to a scientist. I bet the word epidemiology has been said more around the world in 2020 than ever before. Epidemiologists have become prominent figures appearing in broadcast media and popping up as we scroll through our social media feeds. They're also consulting to government and health bodies are, and are indeed a crucial part of our response as a community to the pandemic. I wanted to chat to someone, to an expert, about COVID-19 and how it impacts the hospitality world. Which scenarios are more risky than others? Why is the Victorian government mandating predominantly outdoor dining? And what, if anything, can restaurants do to make their premises as safe as possible? Mary Louise McClaws is Professor of Epidemiology, Hospital Infection and Infection Diseases Control at the University of New South Wales. She's a member of the World Health Organization Ad Hoc Infection, Prevention and Control for COVID-19. She knows her stuff. Mary Louise, thank you so much for coming along to have a chat. It's a pleasure. Tell me what an epidemiologist does. Well, there are many different types of epidemiologists. Um, they look for patterns. So um, we, we look at um, disease patterns uh, and there are some that uh, do this in, uh, with cancer. Others do it in injuries, they, um, traffic injuries or alcohol-related uh, diseases. Um, I do it in uh, infection control and outbreak investigation. So I look for a pattern. We have um, tools or, or approaches in outbreak management um, that the general community would think are fairly draconian um, so that we can prevent infection from happening. So you hear terms like ring fencing, uh, curfews, um, that sort of thing. And then you'll hear terms like serial interval, um, incubation period, and 14-day uh, rolling averages. And so uh, we use analysis behavior, particularly behavior and outbreak investigation, uh, to help us interpret patterns as well. So a global pandemic such as we're in the midst of now, is that a sort of peak career moment for you? I mean, what's it been like for you to be an expert in something that we're all so impacted by? Well, my husband mentioned the other day that, oh, well, um, I, was, I was complaining I was tired. And he said, oh, well, you only get one pandemic. And I said, remember SARS? He goes, all right, two. And then I said, remember avian flu? All right, he said. And then I said, remember Ebola? I didn't go to Ebola, but I mentored um, my student through three Ebola missions and, of course, HIV. So, but normally we don't get uh, known by the community because um, a lot of these outbreaks occur overseas and Australia being an island and most Western and uh, developed countries are protected from a lot of things like MERS and SARS. And so they don't really hear about epidemiologists. And now there's this really nasty pandemic. Um, they're now hearing about it. And I'm really impressed 
that the public are um, understanding a lot of the terminology and they've become very, very sophisticated. So um, I'm really delighted um, that they are interested in, and very thankful that they are as well. Well, I think we can say in Australia that the the health response has been based in science. It's, um, you know, it hasn't always, I guess different jurisdictions have done things differently, but it has been, uh, I mean, there, you couldn't say that about every jurisdiction around the world, um, that, that science has really driven um driven the driven government to in its decisions absolutely so I'm on a um, World Health Organization um, group uh, guidance group for COVID and uh, there are very many different approaches by their authorities compared to ours and the reason I'm so grateful that the community are interested in epidemiology is one it's good for them but two Australians be they um, visitors or residents or citizens, are one, a very peaceful group, uh, two, uh, very logical, and by and large, incredibly um, uh, wanting to cooperate, very cooperative. Uh, if you give them logic, um, don't tell them any um, uh, non-truth, uh, they'll then not necessarily like what they have to do, and that's understandable, but they get on board and we are just so fortunate. So regardless of politics, and I have to tell you, politics and pandemics are a really deadly uh, combination. It's like a pandemic on steroids when you add politics. And um, regardless of the politics, our leaders uh, really care about their constituents and uh, they may have a slightly different approach, as you've mentioned, uh, but they really are science-driven. Um, the one thing that an outbreak epidemiologist is a bit gets a bit concerned about is sometimes the slowness out of being um, responsive because outbreak management you become you should be very preemptive. But honestly, uh, Australia is so fortunate, and we are fairly much a a poster country uh, for the way we're handling it, along with, of course, New Zealand and several other countries in Asia. Mm. Well, you're in Sydney and I'm in Melbourne. We are having somewhat different experiences of the pandemic uh, at the moment. And certainly I've noticed, you know, the conversations in Victoria as our second lockdown has continued have become a, a bit more combative and frayed and there is a, a lot more discussion about the correct pathway. There's that, there's that continual and ongoing balance between looking after health and uh, getting the economy moving again. How do you balance those things and, and how do you consider those conversations? Yeah. Well, look, I have family and friends in Melbourne, so I hear exactly what's going on. Um, we've had lockdown here in uh, Sydney uh, before, but it was fairly mild compared to what you're going through. Um, uh, I've seen uh, what happened during SARS and, in fact, in the very early phases um, of this pandemic in Australia, I happen to mention to journalists, we have to be mindful of mental health of the, of the community and healthcare workers. Now, I said that very early on, and some people probably thought, ah, this is a walk in the park. But in fact, it's, it's hard work. You, you have to change your normal behaviour. Um, you have to think very differently. You can't always be enjoying the conversation with a stranger on the street 
you've got to think how close am I standing to them? How long have I been talking to them? It it uh, it takes its toll. Um, and look, it, it's it's not as bad in one way uh, that the uh, Asia coped with SARS, where it was a real lockdown and um, it took its toll. But as an outbreak or an epidemiologist, I try not to think or act as an economist. That's not my job. So I leave I leave that to the economists, um, and I just give my opinion as an outbreak epidemiologist, purely. And then the authorities can balance what we think is the is the right approach to outbreak management versus how they're going to interpret it given they want people to still eat and um, and they want people to still be um, having good mental health. So I I don't get into that domain because I really it's not my um, expertise at all. But I feel for everyone. In fact, uh, looking at uh, the future, I was tasked by WHO to futurize what health services would be like for the Western Pacific region that we Australia is in and New Zealand and uh, 30 odd other countries, uh, what it would be like by 2050. Um, and it was a really difficult thing to imagine. And of course, climate change came into everything I thought about. But I kept um, thinking to myself, um, it's, it's very hard. We're an interconnected uh, community in what we call the Wipro area, um, the Western Regional uh, Pacific Office for WHO, and we need to start thinking regionally. So the next time this happens, we can open up bubble with our neighbours and uh, countries in this region that have a similar epidemiological pattern so that we can have a slightly normal life because there will be other pandemics. Oh, there won't be one like next year or the year after, though, will there? <laughs> Don't... <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I'm sorry to tell you that we'll still be dealing with this one because while there are nine vaccine candidates uh, being trialled in what we call um, stage uh, or phase uh, three trials, which is the phase where you can get tens of thousands of people to take the vaccine and then you look for efficacy, how many people have developed um, sustained uh, neutralizing antibodies. Um, they only just started enrolling about a month ago and they need to get at least 30,000 or more. Now that's not going to happen immediately uh, and also they have to follow them up to see how long the antibodies to this virus last with a vaccine. And then we have to develop it and then we have to roll it out and decide who gets it first. So you and I will not be getting a vaccine immediately. And if something happens that's remarkable between um, now and, say, mm, the end of next year, I'd be really very happy. But I don't think we'll be looking at uh, travel uh, to our Asian neighbours until maybe the end of next year. Wow. Okay, let's talk about restaurants and the hospitality industry more broadly. Um, the third step for Metropolitan Melbourne 
is going to happen when the daily average number of cases in the past 14 days is less than five statewide and there are fewer than five cases with an unknown source in the last 14 days. We're hanging on those numbers every day in Melbourne. It's looking pretty touch and go as to whether we're going to get there in the next couple of weeks, which is what a lot of people are hoping. What do you think about um, about those numbers and about that ambition for Victoria, for Melbourne? Well, um, I was trolling your and stalking your data for a very long time in uh, Victoria and came up with the traffic light system of green being less than five cases, was very safe. Amber, five to seven, in other words, about 60 to 99 cases in total over 14 days. And then 100 cases is red because then exponentially it explodes. The amount of contact traces and human resourcing means it's very difficult to get on top of it. And um, Victorian uh, epidemiologist Professor Tony Blakely um, tested that uh, less than five in a model and found that you'll only be at a 3% chance of a third wave if you aim for that. And it's a, I believe it's a safe level of less than five, but will you get there? So um, you haven't been in the green zone for a very, very, very long time. So it's been amber and red since March. So you've had um, some uh, very stubborn, uh, very persistent, low-level community spread, and then all of a sudden you had um, numbers from all sides that uh, came from the hotel quarantine, spilled out into residential aged care, hospitals, um, and the general community. It was an enormous battle, and you got up to 600 and uh, no, sorry, 6,543 in total over a 14 day period. That was the peak. That's what I would call volcanically red. And that was uh, on um, the 8th of August. So You've had two months and you've got that total down and the total for this last 14 days has been 140, which is brilliant. But that's not a total of 59, which is in the green zone yet. You've on average got 10 cases per day. That's twice as many that you really need. And so you're still in that red zone. But... Uh, you, you are likely to get there. You may not get exactly four or less. You might get five or it might take an extra week. But I've looked at how well you've decreased the numbers uh, between each fortnightly period. And it's declined initially. It was slow, 40-odd decline, and then 60-odd percent decline. And then just in the last two weeks, uh, as of today, looking backwards, there's been a decline of 62% in numbers. Now, that's great. So if you continue to do that, um, you'll just make it uh, in two weeks. But you've got, you've got 10 days, so you may just miss out. So you might have to be a little more patient for at least 
an additional week or two. But we're bloody legends, aren't we, really? Let's face it. We've done pretty well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've done brilliantly. And in fact, you know, there are, there are leaders and leaders are only as good as their um, panel of experts that then advise their chief medical officer, who then advise um, the, the premier, who then has to make the decision about uh, whether or not to listen purely to epidemiology, to outbreak investigation. And you've had all of that. But that's neither here nor there if you don't have a population that are really amazing. And Victoria, you do. <laughs> I mean, you've been through a hell of a lot and you've really, you've kept going. So, I mean, there is a small group and there always will be in every community uh, that don't understand that we care for ourselves, but we also care for each other. Um, I mean, you know, that Australian um, mateship uh, happens in every community. Even if you've only been here for a week, you become uh, quickly into that framework. And Victoria, you're amazing. So well done, you big pat on the back. And you can, you, you can get there and you will get there. And we will get to restaurants. So tell, tell us about restaurants and what kind of particular dangers perhaps there are or particular advantages? You know, where, where do restaurants fit in, in a COVID landscape? So once you get to less than five cases, um, there will always be a small underlying risk uh, because it's a pandemic and because cases can come in from cargo ships or cargo planes or from asymptomatic cases that have bumbled, bubbled away. Um, so we need to live differently for a while yet, for at least another year and a half yet. So a restaurant will look like, and we're very fortunate we're going into summer, outdoors. You'll embrace outdoors. And even if it gets a bit colder, let's hope there are heaters. Because um, when we exhale and we're exhaling the virus, this particular virus likes to hook on to larger droplet sizes. So when you exhale, you exhale particles that have many different sizes. And we, for ease, divide it into greater than five microns or less than five microns. So greater than five microns are called droplets, and droplet are larger. And this virus likes to sit um, in or on this droplet for many reasons, it could be hydrophilic, um, it just likes the bigger ones. But it can also, uh, those droplets can also be um, made smaller through uh, being dried out. Uh, we also produce smaller particles. We don't know yet what the um, infectious dose is, but we assume that the much smaller size particles called droplet nuclei, which are which are less than five microns in size. Uh, they're about a thousandth of the size of a droplet. Uh, we believe that you'll probably need much more of that virus, uh, many more droplet nuclei to become, to become infected. So um, how does that fit in with uh, a, a restaurant? Well, if you're sitting inside and you have very little airflow change, then that can be problematic because those very tiny droplet nuclei hang in the air 
for quite some time. And there's been some really terrific lab-based studies showing that without any um, airflow, they can hang in the air for uh, at least five seconds. Of course, they the big ones start dropping down. Um, and it means that if you're sitting next to somebody and they're pushing out particles, even though you're not sitting, they're not at your table, and there's no airflow in a restaurant, you could potentially catch COVID if you're there for quite some time over dinner or snack, for example. But when you're outside, there's much better airflow change. It dissipates your exhaled air. And so when you're inhaling somebody else's air, there are very, very few particles. So you're safer. You're also safer during the day when it's hot because um, it, that uh, dries out the particles and the virus uh, won't live as long. So there, uh, there's many good things about being outside. And when the particles do land on hard surfaces that we call high-touch areas, such as the back of your chair or the front of the table, you know, when you, if you're trying to pull yourself towards the table or move the table around, all those high-touch areas, um, they should be cleaned often. But if they aren't cleaned that often, at least you've got the sun and the wind drying out those particles and therefore making it more unlikely that you can catch COVID from uh, the environment. So what do you think about the distancing and density rules for um, indoors and outdoors? So if someone's indoors, the table should be 1.5 metres away and density should be one person per four square metres. Do you think that that is, uh, is good? Like, is that, is that enough to protect people? Look, it's not really enough. I mean, 1.5 if um, people aren't raising their voices. And when you're in a restaurant, and people are having fun, they've invited some alcohol or there's some background noise and people have to lift their um, volume to be able to be heard, you're now pushing out more particles. And um, uh, there's a great video that you can see of people um, speaking and singing. And there's a really nice outbreak. Well, it wasn't nice, but it's a nice study uh, showing that when people sing, uh, which is a bit like talking loudly or laughing, uh, you push out more particles. And there was a, a very large outbreak of, I think it was over 60 people were infected. And 1.5 metres is a minimum. And then you've got people all talking at once and a low airflow change. Now, on a COVID ward, the uh, required uh, ventilation should be at least 60 to 80 litres per second per person in a room about four by two by three cubic metres. And that's a very high airflow change. And that's if everybody has COVID. But if you're in a restaurant, let's say one person has COVID. It had, there has been an outbreak in China and the air conditioning was on, but We've never found COVID in air conditioning or the air conditioning filter. And what we think happened was that the particles were pushed from the source person to the other end of the restaurant, which wasn't that big. And um, the, uh, the, the, the person who acquired it from the case um, would have breathed in a large number of particles over a meal. 
so you don't even have to sit next to somebody. And you need the, the air conditioning unit to be attached to the outside wall so that it's actually bringing in new air and exchanging it. Now, that's more expensive to run, but that's what should be required. If you don't have that, then you need uh, natural airflow. And uh, the natural ventilation uh, is quite high, really. Um, uh, it's, uh, I think it's something like 160 litres um, per second per person. So that's quite high. That's a bit of a breeze going through. Uh, you might not want to sit in the breeze going through, but if it's a nice hot day, then let's hope they open up the windows and the doors and you should be okay. Right. It w- it's a lot to think about, isn't it? But I suppose if you mm. if you own a restaurant, if you can um, ventilate your air conditioning to the outside, then that's good. Windows and doors open is good. I mean, if I'm sitting in a breeze, is that something? Uh, should I be w- worried that you know if I'm if someone's sitting by the door and they're having a good old laugh and the doors open and that I can feel the breeze coming f- from the door towards me at the other end of the restaurant? Is that something to be concerned about? Or with that airflow, can I be confident that the droplets are being dispersed um, effectively? Or do we just not know? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one of the models uh, showed that with at a four kilometer an hour wind, um, then uh, most of that. Um, exhaled air will have fallen in five five seconds um and if it travels six meters which it can it will have started to fall to the ground uh so uh you should be okay really uh we don't know what the infectious dose is but the pattern of covid would look very different if a lot of people started catching it at one end of the of the restaurant um but if there's a lot of airflow change, it's unlikely that you'll get it. Now, you see, if you had an epidemiologist um, making the rules and the number of infections in the community was in the amber or the red level, I'd be saying you have to have all your windows open and I'd like you to sit outside. And it could be winter, but that's okay. You can have a heater on. But given that the numbers will be low at uh, less than five per day, in a large city like Melbourne, and yes, there'll be about 20% of cases that will be asymptomatic um, because we've estimated it at about 20%. So let's say you've got, you know, probably six people out there. It's the probability of them all being in that restaurant is very low. And even having one is still low. But if it's well ventilated and or you're sitting outside you should be fine. It's when the numbers start to increase that we are that the authorities should start to say, I'd prefer you to use a face shield. Now, we haven't identified the exact uh, amount of protection that a face shield without a mask provides yet. We certainly don't allow healthcare workers to wear them, um, but in a restaurant or particularly for the hospitality staff, it might be a good idea. But it's very difficult to have a, a drink and a laugh and a chat while you're um, wearing a face mask. Um, but if I was in charge of the outbreak management, I would be asking people not to go indoors uh, once it starts getting in the high amber level. And I think it's starting to put a curfew on indoor restaurants 
until the number got back into the green zone. And that should happen very rapidly. Now, once Melbourne gets down to the green zone, you should be able to handle the occasional small cluster. So I think that in the green zone, sitting indoors, um, I'd prefer it to be at least a couple of metres away. Um, with some good airflow change, you should be at a reasonably safe level and particularly safe if you're sitting outside. Okay. I think we will be wearing masks except for when we're eating and I think that will be go, that'll go for staff and guests in Melbourne. I'm really pleased about that because during SARS in 2003, because that's what I would have said, because during in SARS 2003 at the SARS designated hospital where I was um, asked to do some work for uh, identifying how healthcare workers were getting SARS, uh, the staff were required to go to the staff room have their mask on, only sit in one direction, no speaking, and lift up their mask, put their lunch in their mouth, put the mask down and chew. And um, very few healthcare workers were infected. I mean, yes, there were, there are about 60 odd, but at the moment in Australia, we've got over 2,500. So it does work. It just looks weird, but I'm really pleased to hear that. That's great. Well, I, I don't make the rules, but I think that we're all resigned to the fact that we'll be wearing masks. I do have to say that, you know, putting some food in my mouth, putting my mask back down, chewing and not talking, it doesn't sound very convivial. So I guess, you know, that's something else that I wonder, you know, should restaurants be thinking about creating quieter environments so that people don't have to talk? And uh, do guests need to limit their, uh, their, their funny anecdote telling because we don't want people laughing too much and spraying their particles around? Well, look, once you're in the green zone, which will happen soon enough, um, you can do the laughing. And particularly outside, you'll be very safe to do the laughing. Thank goodness. <laughs> you'll need to be in that green zone for at least 14 days for people like me to say you're very safe. Um, but in the early days, I, I sounded like a killjoy saying things like, when you're standing in a queue waiting to pay for your goods, please don't talk on your phone. Try not to talk to your kids too often and just don't laugh because it pushes particles out and it sounded weird but it just keeps everybody a little bit safe but once you're in the green zone and you're sitting a couple of meters apart and particularly outside I think you'll be okay to telling the occasional joke. That's good. Um, does weather make a difference? Like you've mentioned that hot days are good for dispersing the particles but is, is humid weather a particular concern for example? Well, um, it's, it, it's, re, it's really very sad. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 is very 80% similar to SARS-CoV-1, which caused the SARS outbreak. And a very famous virologist in Hong Kong did a very interesting lab study that showed that when relative humidity increased and temperature increased, the survival rate of SARS-CoV-1 virus declined rapidly. And um, when it reached about a relative humidity of 80%, it did not survive at all. And so we were all thinking, well, that explained why it dissipated. SARS it went very rapidly in June. That was it. This is great. As soon as we get summer. But this virus, is um, SARS-CoV-2, is not playing the game. And in fact, this one could be more hydrophilic. So it might like um, the humidity. And in but the heat 
if there's not a lot of humidity, it might desiccate, might dry out the virus. But it doesn't seem as if um, we are reaching a high enough temperature or dry uh, heat enough. And and if that were the case anyway, we wouldn't probably be seeing high numbers in Morocco, Iraq, Iran, um, uh, uh, Jordan. Um, they're all increasing in in case numbers, and their summer, of course, is now going. Uh, but some of those countries have high heat all the time. So I I think that it's indicating that this virus is not playing uh, the same as the SARS-CoV-1 in the lab. It's uh, very disappointing. Mm. Can you talk about the relative importance of disinfecting and cleaning regimes, which, you know, restaurants are excellent at. They're used to working in hygienic environments and being very regimented and organised about those kinds of things. Is that going to play a big role in containing and controlling the spread of the virus? Uh, we believe that the majority of spread is droplet, so it's inhaled. Then the next uh, level of risk is touching a contaminated surface and then putting it to your, your mouth or your nose or your eyes because you do have what's called ACE2 receptor sites in your eyes as well. Now, there have been some lab studies done uh, looking at um, how long SARS-CoV-2 uh, lasts on um, uh, hard surfaces. And uh, sadly, <laughs> it lasts for many hours um, on stainless steel. Now, that's very disappointing because we would uh, have hoped um, that stainless steel uh, wouldn't um, be problematic. Uh, it's very easy to clean and we use a lot of stainless steel in hospital, but it can live for easily for four hours on stainless steel. Mm. So all that cleaning is very important. All that so, cleaning is really important, yeah. Uh, and the hand washing and all that stuff we've been told from the very beginning. All that, yes, hand washing is very, very important. We touch our faces 23 times an hour. So I had a wonderful PhD student called Jan Grolton. And um, Jan and I were doing some work for the chief medical officer at the time, getting ready for um, swine, oh, sorry, um, pandemic influenza. And um, I, well, I was looking at mask use and thinking, uh, I wonder if people got infected uh, during SARS uh, because they touched their face uh, a lot with because you know masks can be very annoying. So we looked at uh, a group of medical students at our university, and our university is very uh, multicultural, and we followed them for uh, several classes, so on total for about four hours. And we identified that they, while sitting there, of course we had ethics approval <laughs> to do this, um, they touched their face 23 times an hour, and of those, 11 times were to the mucous membrane, so the nose, the mouth, and the eyes. So um, we humans do it a lot, uh, and I'm not sure why we do it. We looked at the literature, and it would appear as if it comes from some long 
uh, genetically coded behavior of self-grooming to either make ourselves feel calm or it's uh, a signal to tell people we're a little anxious. So either of those. So it's, a, it's something that's very difficult to um, code out of human behavior. So hand hygiene is very important because if we're touching our nose, our mouth, um, or our eyes, we want to touch with clean hands. But we also know that if you're touching your nose or your mouth, you can pick up SARS-CoV um, virus and, um, and put it on your hands and then you know, touch a hard surface, and if it's stainless steel or, or another plastic, it will live at least for four hours in just the right conditions, not if you're outside with the sun beating down. Well, I think I just touched my face about 11 times while you were answering that question and tried not to touch it about another eight times. So, yeah, I can be part of your next research study. Um, mm -hmm. Great. Mary Louise, is there anything else that restaurateurs and indeed diners should know about uh, about this coronavirus and how we can reduce the risks um, in yeah, oh. for ourselves and the people around us? Uh, a couple of things. Um, for the diners and for the hospitality staff, it's really important not to wait too long, which we all do, before we go and get uh, tested or go to the GP uh, if we're feeling unwell. And once we start to open up all the restaurants, uh, if you get diarrhea or a stomach pain, a stuffy nose, you could put it down to an allergy um, or it could be the beginnings of, of COVID. Um, and then, of course, there are there's the tiredness, the aches and the pains, um, and the the brain fog, uh, and then it starts getting worse, the the difficulty in breathing. But most people wait for about three days, uh, and that's sadly about six days too late to get tested because you've been infectious for three days until you've got tested, and then it might take another day or half a day to get the test. And then three days before you became symptomatic, you can be spreading it without you even realizing because you're pre-symptomatic but infectious with this particular virus. So that's why the public are told regularly, go and get tested the instant you have some strange or unusually um, unusual things like you can't smell or you know when you put on your aftershave or your perfume in the morning and you can't smell it, or you go to smell your breakfast, um, do something about it and don't wait for those three days. Um, so that's one thing you can do. Uh, the other thing you can do is, of course, uh, make sure you're hand hygienic. Um, so every time you touch a high touch surface uh, that's not yours at home, um, hand hygiene. So when you enter the restaurant, hand hygiene to show uh, respect to all of those people in that environment. And hand hygiene on the way out so that you don't take any germs you may have picked up and take them to wherever else you're going. Then the other thing you can do if you're going to cough or sneeze, do it in the crook of your arm, uh, not in your hand. And if you continue to sneeze, stand up and walk out and get your sneezing over and done with. Um, throw away your tissue carefully to make sure that it doesn't escape and roll down the street. And uh, for the hospitality staff, they're safe while we're in the green zone. 
when we start going into the amber or zone and restaurants haven't been closed down, wearing a lightweight face shield will protect uh, them from any of the exhaled air that their patrons are pushing out towards their direction and try not to stand too close. Um, and just out of practice, because we we tested people's idea of how far a meter was in a hospital and mostly they couldn't get it. Um, so if you think you're a meter and a half away from somebody, you probably aren't. So just take one more step back and just step back a bit. And um, uh, yes, uh, clean those, uh, that table and, and the chairs before the next group of patrons come in. Hand hygiene. I mean, restaurants um, and coffee shops are really great at uh, environmental cleaning. But to actually have the patrons see them do it, it sends a very good public health message that says, I'm caring for you. Um, but it also says to people subconsciously, this is what I should expect. This is best practice. And it'll become the social norm. Because in Asia, when you sit down and in the Middle East, you're given a towelette. And it's a lovely practice to start the meal or the snack or the drink off with clean hands. So that should be our new social norm. Yeah, great. And ask them to open the window if it's feeling a bit stuffy. I think that's something else that we could, yeah. Yes, yeah. so um, in hospitals, um, once a SARS, or sorry, a COVID patient uh, leaves, depending on the size of the room, um, they are to um, clean out the air. So they're, they're supposed to have an air change. And that air change depends on how long before you can put a new patient in there. Depends on how fast the ventilation is. Is it 60 or 80 litres per second per person? So let's say the airflow changes with less than that in the average restaurant. Open up your restaurant, uh, particularly at the end of the night, really you know, freshen out that air because those that work there want to work in a safe place and you want to keep them safe as well. So it just gets rid of the any air and keeps the, the staff nice and safe. Wonderful. Uh, Mary Louise, it's such a privilege to have the benefit of your expertise and particularly applied to restaurants and cafes, to those settings that we are so looking forward to getting back to. Uh, thank you so much for uh, talking to Dirty Linen today. We're very grateful. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I hope you're going to enjoy your summer soon. <laughs> we hope so as well. Thank you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.